Hi, this is Jean Nathan, it is Crosstown Conversations, and um, we as always have some very interesting and informative guests, um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years, and I think um, people tend to appreciate uh, the information you're getting from us, so here goes for today. Susan Brennan, um, CEO, Second Line Stages, member of the Board of Prospects, um, sitting on the Mayor's uh, Reopening Task Force. Um, you're very much involved, uh, not just now, but always in the, in the creative life of the city. And I actually often think of you as the one who literally took the dreams and talk about the film industry and a film studio to reality. So um, let's go back for a minute and talk about the state of uh, your business and industry pre-COVID. So let's get a, uh, our code our of um, uh, uh, the setup before that happens. Well, I, I, our um, industry pre-COVID was very healthy. Um, more uh, television was coming down here, which, um, the television is the steady work that the guy, the crew guys get on for six to eight months and um, much more than, you know, hopping from movie to movie to movie, unless we get a, a, a blockbuster movie. Right. And, um, you know, we, we had a production start in uh, March 1st and then <laughs> shut down, um, you know, March 16th. So um, we are, we've been shut down since then. So um, again, how would you characterize uh, this New Orleans as a film and video center prior to COVID um, and, and in a sense uh, um, compared with how it was before you and others started really uh, trying to make sure that we had an industry? Well, um, certainly, we're probably fourth in um, in in you know New York, California, and Atlanta has passed us. We were third, but Atlanta has um, has passed us. We're probably fourth in the United States as far as um, filming, and um, but a very healthy industry. Uh, we do not give tax credits to the large, um, what they call tentpole films. So we will never um, be able to compete with Atlanta or California or New York. But um, a lot of uh, mid-range projects come here and a lot of television comes here. And uh, we have established ourselves as a very, um, uh, easy state to film in and e easy uh, with incredibly um, talented crews and um, you know and we're the go-to state for mid-size um, motion pictures and uh, mid and, and high-end television productions so um, talented crews uh, that was not how we started. We didn't have a huge natural base of, of talented crews, but I, I suspect what you're implying is that as we started to attract the industry, uh, we started attracting um, the crew people 
who realized they could actually not just work here from event to event, but um, actually live here. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And, and uh, Novak has done an incredible job of training people. And, uh, you know, if you talk back into 2001, um, I think the crew, the uh, IATSE crew had less than 200 members and they're now at 15, 1600 members, um, mm -hmm. you know, who, who work and, you know, you can, they were sort of an, an, you know, an A crew and a B crew and now there's an A, B, C, D, E, you know, I mean, you can, you can crew up for several productions at the, at the time and get talented people. That's pretty amazing. And um, also, I'm thinking that um, uh, the, when we were number three and we went to four, that was a that was kind of a blip that turned into a um, blob because it was um, uh, the legislature got it into their heads that there was fraud uh, because of one company really uh, and uh, a the media kind of hammered away at that one company resulting in the impression that there was fraud it really was one instance and that um caused a kind of temporary shutdown and that scared everybody pretty much and um and and made it seem again like we're as fragile as any community that offers uh, the best tax credits until somebody else comes along with better tax credits but we're beyond just tax credits at this point aren't we yeah, no, I I think um, I mean I, definitely productions want to come here to get the tax credits, but um, you know if and and if the tax credits did not exist, our our business would be way way down. Um, but um, the 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 there's also a lot of talent here. And when and New Orleans is a captivating, creative, beautiful city, so it, it's a wonderful city to film in with um, historic, you know, you can film for anything. You can film for, you know, historic places. You can, it, it can double as a lot of places, but it's also um, a wonderful, look at NCIS New Orleans, how that's taken off and, and remains, I think they're filming their sixth season right now. Um, are about to start filming their sixth season. So that's been incredible success. I don't know what percentage of television programming reaches how many seasons, what the average is, but six sounds to me pretty um, substantial. Yeah, yeah. The, in the industry, um, what you want to do is to get to seven. And that is when you get to seven, then you get syndicated. And there are very few shows that make it to seven. So this is really a success story here. So um, I would imagine also the fact that there have been some other production um, facilities that have come on stream is also a help. Um, it's, I'm sure it's competition as well, of course, but sometimes competition really winds up being um, a broadening of the marketplace and then uh, another factor in bringing um, people here. Is that the case? Yes. Um, no, I can't take every production. Um, we're small. So um, it's, it's, it's great to have other places and, and crews to have other places to work. It just, it just, it, it helps the industry. COVID hits. Yes. Okay. Here you are rocking and rolling. You're getting your television productions. Um, and you could probably aim me at uh, sources of even more statistics, I'm sure. But um, COVID hits. 
tell me what that was like uh, when it first hit and, and then how you had to start thinking about it initially and then how your thinking develops. And tell me, um, I'm sure that it's a two-way street that the companies uh, that are handling the business are affected, but also, of course, all of the workers uh, at all levels are affected. So give me a, a little picture of, of, of how that's been going and, and how you all have been dealing with that. Well, um, you know, we, we, everyone pretty much shut down on uh, March 16th and um, our, our production shut down um, and they were just, they had just opened March 1st. So they were just in the process of building the sets. They had not started shooting. Um, they were scheduled the first shoot, I think was April 11th or something. And um, they, they um, you know, shut it all down. And, um, you know, their, their workers are, are, are laid off. Um, and um, I um, paid my workers. I didn't lay off anybody. I paid my workers the whole time. And then I got the PPP money. Um, so everybody continued to be paid and everybody's, you know, now um, coming into work. And we've had a lot of um, just, uh, we've done cleaning, we've done painting, we've just done a lot of, uh, we've upgraded our IT. We've, you know, we've done a lot of um, little things around the, the campus. We've cleaned carpeted carpets. We've, you know, we've just done maintenance issues. Um, like an opportunity for spring cleaning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we painted, uh, painted things that we never can paint, like the stairwells and stuff like that, because, you know, people are in the stairwells all the time. So, um, you know, hallways and um, so that's, that's been, you know, good. And, and my crew is, you know, we've gotten air conditioning maintenance, you know, and cleaned. And, and so, I mean, that, the, the, the campus is sparkling and we're waiting for our clients to come back the beginning of August. And then they will start shooting after September. But I think all their, um, you know, everyone that they hired has been on furlough, you know, for, um, what of all the people who have been on furlough um, doing during this time? And um, how many of your crew people did you keep on payroll all this time? I kept all my employees on payroll. So how many is that? Uh, 10. And, and, and what about the folks who were furloughed by the companies? What, what was happening with them during this time? Well, you know, it's a, a lot of them are a lot of talented people. Um, so, I don't, you know, I don't know if some of them got construction jobs or, um, you know, because they build sets. So, you know, they, they do a lot of that. Um, to be honest, I haven't seen them. They have not been here, you know. Um, and we, we just opened up May, I mean, started coming back in May 18th um, when we went to phase two. Then we, um, we started coming in the office. So no one was coming in before that. And that's when we started our cleaning on May 18th. And, and um, but, you know, we have, uh, I have not seen any of the crews. During, um, um, during the, the time that you were uh, uh, on May 16th, when you were sort of semi-open, um, 
what was, what was your perception at that moment, at that time, as, as to how things were going to go forward? And uh, how are you looking at it now? I mean, what is, I, I know you all talk constantly, we're all talking about, okay, what's next? So basically, how did you start thinking about what's next at that point? Because that was a, an important turning point. And what, how are you thinking about it now? Well, we've had a lot of Zoom calls with um, a lot of the different, you know, it was really the, um, there's a handbook and every union has a handbook, whether it's a camera union, the hair and makeup union, you know, they, they've all written how they're handling, um, you know, they're, how they're going to handle shooting. And um, ours was, we were talking and we were on Zoom calls with a lot of different people, you know, figuring out how how this was going to work and you know it, it's it's going to be different filming um when when they come back it's it's not going to be you know the even the um the feeding of the crews is the catering is going to be different there's going to be more box lunches that people pick up and and as opposed to eating in the you know in a in a room they pick it up and take it back to their own spaces and there's a lot of lot of difference of um, with the camera crew come in and do their work um, in the space, and then the lighting and grip people will come in and fix the lighting, and then the set designers will come in and fix. And everybody will come in at different times and not be you know on a crowded set like like usual. And then you know when they're they're filming, there'll be far less people in the room when they're filming. They're probably just the directors and assistant directors and the actors you know whereas normally there's all these people standing by and you know waiting for things It'll, it's going to be very different so the camaraderie that i think we all on the outside envision is one of the characteristics of shooting and film crews in your industry um that's definitely going to take a hit yes yeah I, and and i think the crews will be smaller um, I don't think you're going to see these 300 plus person crews anymore. I think that you'll see smaller crews. I think the crews will work longer hours because I think it'll take longer to shoot a scene, but I don't think you'll see the 300 plus. Um, so that implies job loss. It, not if we get as many projects back. If we get, if we, you know, have um, a lot shooting, then it just it's the people will get hired but um I, I think the the unions were very worried about that but i think the people will get hired um what i don't think you'll have is a lot of intern tra tra training um and i think you'll get just the professionals and a lot of the, this industry tends to train a lot of in, interns and you know um i don't think you're going to see any of that well, that, uh, again, that, that impacts uh, the, the crew um, uh, strength of the city uh, uh, if, you, if you're not going to be able to train more people. Because you started out our conversation saying that, you know, getting people from Novak, for example, has been important for the growth of the industry. Yes. So not being able to train as interns, that's going to have an impact. Right. Uh, hopefully this is short term, a year, um, and then they get back to... Everything changes. <laughs> That's what everybody is, is hoping is going to happen. Um, in, in also, in addition to, say, the kind of Novak training, what other kinds of educational 
um, strategies are uh, have been developing and are important in uh, um, helping to develop the workforce and and uh, stabilize the industry here. Well, you know, Novak trains more of the crews. Um, I'm I'm real excited about uh, Ben Zeitlin and uh, Casey Coleman with Court 13, and you know, there's there's the UNO program here, and there's a great program at Loyola and there's a great program at Tulane um, and but it's hard to come out and just you know if you want to be the director or you want to be you know you want to write the script and and produce it um, unless, you know, you're Spike it, Lee. Huh? <laughs> unless you're Spike Lee oh, right right yeah but Spike Lee went to NYU yeah. school and and you know had mentors and what we don't have is um, a lot of mentors. Uh, ben Zeitlin will tell you that he, you know he couldn't have made Beasts of the Southern Wild if he didn't have a lot of mentors really helping him and asking him to question things and look at shots and you know um, and they're gonna start uh, they have a little space um, up on Franklin Avenue and they're gonna hopefully um, you know, develop something that they can take these young filmmakers and, um, and be mentors to them. And, and that, so that side of that, that has not been happened very much. Also the film society has a Southern, um, producers lab and they have done an incredible job in, and that is in conjunction with, um, they, they get a lot of people out of Sundance that sit, you know, and, and reach out to them. So they have um, done an incredible job of, of having Southern voices come, you know, you know, come and produce the chorus, you know, storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, uh, so where, where do the crew people live? What, how are they, um, uh, it, uh, Utilizing the the uh, housing, the neighborhoods, the the all of the amenities of the city. How, how would you say what what is that interrelationship like? I I think the crews live all over. I think the crews live all over. A lot of them tell me they love working at Second Line because they live uptown and they don't want to drive you know, out to New Orleans East to go to Starlight or, or, you know, some of the other ones they love, you know. So I know a lot of them live in the uptown area or maybe, you know, Metairie or, uh, you know, that they can get to my place very easily. Um, I, I don't know where they all live, but they, you know. Um, you have compliment that are living close to you. Yeah. Um, how do you, um, so, so in your experience here, what was the most successful aspect of, of what, you and your company and others in your industry did during COVID that uh, taught you some positive lessons that will have a lasting value? And um, what were some of the challenges that you don't necessarily feel we've quite figured out how to handle yet? So, so, so what worked, what didn't work? I've got such a small company. I mean, we've, we've had a wonderful time being with each other and, and, you know, social distancing, we all wear masks. Um, 
and uh, you're not allowed in the hallway, you're not allowed in the entranceway, whatever, without a mask. So, you know, that, that's been great, but it's really been us and we've been working together on, on projects and that's, that's worked well. Um, I guess what hasn't worked is that we don't have any clients, you know? um, and we don't have any way to getting the clients back um, until, you know, we can start filming again, which the mayor had said July. And um, it just happens that our client um, is choosing to come back in the beginning of August. So um, probably want to let things uh, kind of settle out a little bit first. Yes. Yes. And there are a couple there's, there's one movie that I know is, is, is about to start filming. And I think NCIS New Orleans is, you know, they normally start fil filming their schedule is that they normally start filming first of July. And I, I think that they're either the end of July or beginning of August. So, you know, it's about to ramp up again. What kind of help have you been getting from the public sector, state and city, uh, federal level? Um, uh, what kind of um, support from the business community, civic community? I mean, we all care about the, the film and video industry in the city. So who's doing what to help? Well, the, the PPP loan was, was amazing. Um, that was, you know, allowed me to um, pay my note to the bank. The bank, the bank has been great though, um, you know, of, of um, letting me slip a, a couple of months and, and you know, um, but the uh, PPP loan, without that, I, you know, I would have um, been up a creek. So I, that, that allowed me to pay everybody. What if this um, pandemic situation uh, keeps going? What, what if it, it drags out? Uh, how, does, how does the financial picture look going forward? Well, and, and also it, just in funding, it, your funding in general, how does that look going forward? Well, I mean, we, if we have a client um, who has paid us for the month of July because they were supposed to come back in July, um, and they have paid us and assuming they will pay us in August, um, you know, cause they are supposed to be back here in August. So if, if we have, if we have clients, um, coming, then, then we're fine. Um, and they're making their movies. Now, if we go back to phase one, um, and everything is, you know, shut, shut down again, and we don't have the PPP loan or, you know, anything like that, I, I, I think that's going to be very difficult. And that might, I, I, I have paid everybody um, and I'm, we're paying them now because we, we're, we're paid by our client. But if our client stops paying and we go back into phase one, uh, you know, if we don't get the federal money again, I, I'm going to have to terminate all my employees, you know. That sounds pretty dire. Uh, yeah. Let me uh, uh, switch off that for a minute because uh, that's what we do. We go back and forth between the dire and the, and the opportunities. Long term, going forward, what's your sense of how the film and video industry in New Orleans is going to develop? If we're number four, do we stay at four? And I know we went from three to four primarily because we had that um, stall in the legislature. But um, how do you feel about our long term um, a competitive uh, place in the um, 
film world. But one thing I'll, I'll say that I, I would assume is that the desire for content is doing nothing but skyrocketing with right. all of the online um, use. That's not going to stop. People are getting in the habit of looking at things online. I enjoyed watching Hamilton this weekend, of course. Uh, so um, I, it, it seems to me that the demand is going to be there. Um, are we going to be in a very strong position competing for our share of the market? Yes. Um, yes. I mean, we already have crews. We have we, the infrastructure. Um, we have the tax credits. I, I, I think that New Orleans, I, we will never move to three again because Atlanta has now built, um, I think they have 15 sound stages or something, you know. Um, I mean, they're all over. It's not Atlanta. It's around Georgia. Um, and um, and they don't have a cap. We have a cap, um, and so um, they they just they've done. They're, they're going they're going to eventually probably pass New York. I mean, they they're just going great guns. Um, we we have a very responsible program. It's not outrageous. It's it's about 150 million. Um, you know, Atlanta probably is, you know, their program, they, they must give out way over a million dollars. Um, I mean, over a billion dollars. Uh, we're at 150 million. It's 180, but then they, they take out um, the, the 20%, the, the 30%. So it, it, um, it, 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 it's about 150, 150 million a year. What, what would you say to a young person in New Orleans who wants to be involved in the film industry, whatever the capacity, what would you say to them right now? And what would you say to the public officials in the business community as to what we really need to do to, again, maintain that position at least of, of four? Sounds like it wouldn't hurt for us to be, uh, if we had a way of generating um, uh, more support uh, and getting above that $150 million level, that wouldn't hurt. Um, bulking up what's happening at the schools here, and even in the, uh, in the um, high schools, it, it would be interesting, I think, to enable students to better understand the opportunities in the industry and how they can enter it. Well, you know, what's your thinking about, if you, if you were, you know, could wave your magic wand if you were the mayor, if you were the governor, what would you do? Well, I would probably bump it up. Um, that, that's, that's, that's a state, so that has to be the governor, not the mayor, <laughs> you know. Um, but, uh, and the, le the legislature has to pass it. Um, it's in the budget, but, you know, I would probably bump it up to, you know, 300 million or something like that to, to, uh, to entice more people to come. Um, and um, and to do the because we have a, a cap on the the size of the the show that you you know can't um, earn more than um, I think this is a twenty five uh, million per show so you can't do that that means that you the, your upper limit of a budget of a of a movie is about seventy million. Um, 70 to 80 million because that then when you 
take that you're going to earn 30%. And of course, not everything qualifies because, you know, airplane flights and stuff like that don't qualify. But if everything that you expend, it's, it's only what's spent here in New Orleans or in Louisiana. Um, but if you can only earn 25 million, your upper echelon is, you know, somewhere in the 70, 70 to 75, maybe 80 million that, that, you know, that's your top budget for a film. So we're never going to get, um, my first production that we did was, well, we did a little small production, um, with Jason Statham, uh, called, um, I can't remember the name of it. Um, and then the, the next one we did was the Green Lantern with Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively. And that was a $150 million film that will not happen again. Um, so we won't get any of those big tent poles is what they call them, um, films. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of, fun. those are the ones that have three to 400, you know, plus crews and they're spending money like crazy all over town. And, um, you know, it's, um, we won't have that, but we've got a very responsible program. And I think Louisiana has found its niche. And I think it's it's a good niche, and 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 I think that I'm I'm optimistic for kids coming into the program, and um, and we're we can do a, a lot of small films, and and the Netflix is they're not out to buy the hundred and fifty million dollar film. They 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 want those two and three million dollar movies because they're all about content and as much content as they can get. So I, I you know, think people filming these two to two million dollar movies, you know, or a million and a half to two million dollar movies. I, I think those are going to be saleable to Netflix and Hulu and whatever else, you know, all these streaming platforms. And um, yeah, I, I would, I think that's going to be the new um, I, I don't think you're going to see the big tent poles. Well, you definitely won't see them here in Louisiana. So. Again, I'll, I'll close. Um, I, I, there's a lot we could talk about in terms of the arts and your involvement in the arts. And I think I'll save that for a separate interview because that really is a, a whole other part of your life. But um, I know that having the film industry here, of course, uh, is important in um, supporting, in a sense, the development of our arts uh, and creative industries community in general. Um, there have been studies done that show all of the ancillary opportunities that come along with having films um, shot here. So um, let me um, ask a closing question that is, again, back to what would you tell a young person interested in the industry right now? And I, I do think to the extent that people in your industry can focus on how do we help our, our youth in the city in our, in, at the high school level understand better how to um, chase their dreams in the film business is important. And uh, we can talk about that um, further another time. But um, again, just what, what, what's your, if, if, if you had uh, just a momentary conversation in a cocktail party with a young person who says, I remember Margaret Orr once came to me at the back door of WDSU and said, Jean, what do I do to get into the television business here, right? I said, Margaret, go to a smaller market upstate. Rather than starting at the bottom, start higher up at another station and then come here. Guess what? She's been here now for what, 30 years? <laughs> <laughs> having, having that kind of advice, if you were gonna give that one 
momentary suggestion to a young person uh, about the industry, what, what would the, your words be? Well, if they're in high school, I would encourage them to, to get in a college program that, that, you know, is a film program and where they can see when they can get out and, and learn the tech, the technical skills of, of, of making a, a movie. And then I would encourage them to do everything, you know, to get on, on a film and, and, you know, shadow somebody, mentor, you know, have somebody mentor you. And, and then from there, you know, you, you can, you know, or, I mean, there's people like Philip Humans who, um, the kid um, just made his own movie, you know? With, That's the uh, Raising Cane movie? No. Uh, what was it? Something like that. Burning no. Cane. Yeah. <laughs> Raising Cane's a chicken place. <laughs> Burning Cane, yeah. Um, yeah, just, you know, made his own movie and won at um, the New York Film Festival, you know, the Tribeca Film Festival. Um, and Coming out of Noka, basically. Coming out of Noka, yeah. And so there's, you know, there's, you know, but, but he was trained at NOCA. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's some training that, that I would, you know, would encourage every kid to, to get in some kind of program, whether it's NOCA, whether it's Tulane, whether it's LSU, um, whether it's at UNO, to get in some kind of program. And then, you know, if you, if you feel you've got a great script and, you know, um, try, you know, try it, make it on, I mean, there are people that have shot movies on their iPhones. So, I mean, try something and then, you know, but mentoring, whether through small organizations or, you know, getting a spot at Sundance. I know a lot of people who've gotten spots at Sundance and that has catapulted their careers, you know. So, Garrett Bradley, Lauren Domino, you know, those, you know, um, Susan, you are a treasure, as you know. I'm a big fan and uh, I, I deeply appreciate what you've done for the industry. I'll never forget the years before you uh, did your studio when everybody was saying, when are we going to develop the film industry? When are we going to, when are we going to, when are we going to? And then you uh, said now and did it. And thank you so much for that and everything else you do in the arts. And as I said, we'll talk about the arts further, but... Um, <laughs> You have a great day, and uh, you Thank August, you. Uh, with the beginning of shooting is 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 great, and we'll right. we'll check back in with you. Great. Now we're going to talk with Steve Dumas, who is an architect supreme, um, involved with the arts in the community, civic oriented. Worked on he'll tell us how many projects here, but a lot because he's been around, and um, his law his. Um, architecture firm is one of the prominent firms in town. So I would imagine that uh, your firm uh, is in a better position to handle this and other um, trying times that we always seem to be going through in New Orleans one way or another, whether it's a hurricane or um, COVID or of course now uh, we have a major social movement going on too. So. Um, Steve, let's start with, um, give me just a little skinny on um, SQ Dumez Ripple, your architecture firm. Okay, we're uh, um, a New Orleans-based practice. Actually, uh, let's see, 
1989. So just over 30 years we've been practicing. Wow. Yeah, I know. Um, caught me off guard when I just did the math in my head as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, founded uh, by Alan Eskew, uh, our late partner. Um, I, I had worked with Alan on the, uh, on the World's Fair for New Orleans. Uh, that's where I met Bob uh, Tannen, uh, working on the fair. Um, and you too, Jean. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we all were involved in some form or fashion uh, back in 1984. Every form of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, you know, the firm evolved. I left to go to grad school and lived in L.A. for a little bit. Uh, came back in, in uh, uh, let's see, it was 94, I think, 93. So I've been back in New Orleans for, um, for quite some time as well. And, and so the practice evolved. We, we, um, we're, we're a firm of 50. Um, we do a pretty, right. diverse, that big. Yeah. Yeah, pretty diverse collection of projects, both local and national. We have um, uh, a project, um, a, a large um, sort of tech incubator office building in downtown Charlottesville that'll be opening um, uh, early next year. Uh, we have a museum uh, of arts and sciences and expansion and renovation of the Bruce Museum in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, that's just starting construction. We just completed a, a project at Georgia Tech. So we have um, a, a collection of projects, both local and national, and uh, um, have focused uh, in um, a few areas, but for the most part, it's a diverse practice that uh, is interested in um, the quality of our clients and, and, and work that builds community and really looks at the way in which we can contribute uh, not only to the community, but um, in a positive way to the, uh, to the environment. So um, I would say that you your firm, uh, and I'm not familiar with a lot of your work, but of course some, some of your work, uh, really walks a line between um, being a practical firm, uh, doing work that will serve the client well, um, but also uh, bringing an aesthetic to it so that the work, again, as you said, will have a value uh, in its impact on the environment. Um, so unlike, let's say, uh, firms that may be totally oriented towards serving a real estate client um, at a minimum level of uh, aesthetic considerations, or on the other end, a uh, Gary-like approach where the, the projects are virtually sculpture as opposed yeah. to um, um, strictly architecture. Oh, is that a fair statement? Well, I think we, we like to talk about our interest in um, uh, working on projects that are connected to their place, that, uh, that grow out of an understanding of both the culture, environment, and place in which they're built, um, but that look more broadly at issues related to how they're, um, how they're used and how they can contribute to the community that they're, they're built in. We like to talk about um, it's not that we don't care what our projects look like, um, because we do, but we're much more interested in the way in which they work. And so the, the way in which they fit into a place and, 
and serve not only the client's needs, but also the broader community needs. Sure. Um, because those two, you know, we, have, we always have paying clients, but we view our projects as being responsible to a broader clientele, so to speak. And I think that that's an interest of the practice that isn't always um, compensated for, right? Sure. Um, so uh, mention to me a couple of the projects in New Orleans, just for those who are not familiar with the name of your firm, uh, but a couple of the uh, projects in the city that most people would recognize. Well, we were one of the parties that, uh, that did the, um, uh, the Aquarium of the Americas, and we've been working with the Audubon Institute uh, uh, since, uh, looking at different ways to refresh and update that project. Um, that sort of was Alan's um, uh, projects uh, as he left Perez, w maintaining his focus and interest in working on the riverfront, which was which was sort of initiated with the um, 1984 Louisiana World Exposition. Mm -hmm. So um, the aquarium was an initial um, kind of signature project of the practice, which was done in a joint venture with, with three other local firms. Um, uh, also on the river, uh, Crescent Park, which opened a couple of years ago, um, a, a large urban project um, on the waterfront. Uh, another urban project, Champion Square, which uh, emerged out of the work that we were doing as part of a larger team, uh, renovating the Superdome after Katrina. Um, we've done uh, uh, work at NOMA. We are just wrapping up a wonderful little project, um, renovation of the auditorium at NOMA and the enclosure of one of the courts and the renovation of the cafe. So cultural projects like NOMA, um, some work at the CAC, um, uh, the Shaw Center for the Arts in Baton Rouge, which is an art museum and uh, um, a performing arts venue, uh, the Hilliard Museum of Art, which is at the University of Lafayette in Louisiana. Um, so a collection of cultural projects. We also have some university work that we've done for both Tulane and LSU. Tulane, we've done laboratories downtown, um, renovation of the J. Bennett Johnston lab. And we're currently um, uh, uh, designing a new residence hall, um, did the renovation and expansion of, of the library at Tulane. Um, more projects located more downtown, we've done a number of the projects in the South Market area. South Market District, we did the Beacon and the Park to, uh, both a multifamily residential project, but also uh, parking garage and 930 Poydras. How are we going to get a better appreciation of the extent of the activity in architecture in this city and better appreciation for our architectural legacy, as well as the innovation that we are seeing today um, uh, going forward. So it's, it's um, getting respect, more respect for the architectural practice in the city. Well, I think that, you know, as, as architecture responds to the uh, issues related to COVID, I think 
by its nature, it's going to have to become more aware of the way in which um, it uh, it provides a safe and healthy environment for its users, right? And you know, in that regard, uh, interestingly enough, what what modern technology has to some degree allowed us to do is kind of um, ignore the place that we're building in, and I think that um, uh, the fact that we're going to we're going to have to engage with our place a little bit more that um, this question of health, this question of how we create opportunities for interaction without putting people at risk. Um, this whole issue of resilience fundamentally, um, not, not necessarily building resilience, but community resilience mm -hmm. is, is going to be paramount as we come out of of this set of experiences. And I think the architecture that would emerge from that is gonna to have to be um, more attuned to the environment that we're building in um, and not simply ignore it because we can, uh, uh, we can throw HVAC or we can throw money at a, at, a, at a problem. So in that regard, it connects a little bit more directly to the architecture that grew out of this place, which was fundamentally about creating um, uh, the most habitable environment that you could in a somewhat inhabitable, um, um, inhospitable environment. Um, now, what's what's interesting, you know, I read an article, um, I think it was last week in the New York Times about about food tourists driving into New York um, if they lived in states that uh, uh, that allowed visitation to the city. And people were taking an opportunity to visit New York because they could go to these restaurants. Granted, the experience was very different, but they could stay in a hotel, they could go to the restaurants, and they could have a different set of experiences than they had, let's say, in, um, in Cincinnati, or, or let's just say Ohio, not Cincinnati. But um, I think that New, New Orleans, um, uh, if we can find a way to pivot, you know, obviously our hospitality industry is incredibly hard hit and very fragile in this environment. Um, on the other hand, New Orleans, unlike almost any city in the United States, has the cultural capacity to draw visitors who are interested in um, a set of experiences that you, that you can't often get without flying um, to another country. Yeah. And in an environment where nobody can really travel except locally, I think New Orleans is incredibly well positioned to market itself as a destination for visitors as we emerge out of, um, out of this. If we can find a way, I mean, what we're missing, the restaurants are, are struggling, but many of them are open. And, you know, as locals, we need to do everything that we can to support them for as long as it takes. What's not working is music because we can't actually have live performances where large groups gather. So we have to find a way somehow in this um, current set of circumstances uh, to support our musical heritage and the culture that, that it's built on. Um, uh, you know, the visual artists um, with the museums 
and galleries still in this state of flux um, are probably more like restaurants in that regard, but the musicians are a whole nother matter. And if we can maintain our, our creative culture, then there's no city, very few cities in the United States that, um, uh, that can match it. And as a result, I think it, it positions us in a different way, in the same way that people will drive from Ohio to go to New York to try restaurants because you know, they've become um, cultural tourists, or in this case, food tourists. New Orleans has that um, uh, times, times 10. So right. how do we take advantage of um, asked um, uh, a friend of mine, Dee Dee Bridgewater, is a jazz singer, you probably know her. And um, she settled here in New Orleans and I asked her, why, why did you decide? Um, she's been living in LA and Paris and, and she said, well, it's the closest thing I could get to Paris in this country. So yeah. I thought that was a, um, we, we often think of ourselves as a, as a more European and Caribbean than, than classic um, uh, Protestant American, let's say. But um, I, I guess, um, I, I'm still, uh, the one thing I want to uh, still encompass in our conversation is the issue of gaining more respect for the architectural practice here and uh, um, seeing us be able to, in a sense, export our architectural services more. So your company has figured out how to do national business. A couple others in town have figured out how to do that. But given the um, architectural richness of our city, you would think that that would be more. That should be greater. And so what's your sense of how we can advance, um, let's say more of an export of the practice of New Orleans as well? So it's one thing to make sure that people come here. And um, I think your description of you know, the, the um, attractiveness of our destination as compared with a lot of other domestic destinations is right on target. Who who lives here wouldn't agree with that. But um, also there's the question of um, people really uh, pursuing our architectural, the services of firms like yours and smaller ones and independent ones. So I just wanna uh, look at that too before we... Um, close off and hope that we're being recorded. <laughs> well, if I, if, I, if I had the secret to that question, I could probably uh, bottle it and make a fortune. I mean, we, when, we, um, when we have to compete outside of the city, um, we are competing, we're no longer competing at a, at a, at a local level. We have to uh, operate our practice at a national level. And uh, with all that that entails, which means we're competing against practices who sometimes are in uh, environments where, um, let's just say, environmental sustainability is at the forefront of conversations. Um, we had to. We did a lot of projects uh, in the early years um, of the practice where, where, where we had to, we had to work elsewhere to introduce or to have clients ask us uh, to do projects that, that exhibited high levels of building performance and environmental sustainability. Um, now, I would say that again, Katrina was a, was, was a, a change agent in that regard in that, um, you know, the welder 
uh, in the seventh ward all of a sudden understood the responsibility that one and the impact that not thinking about the environment uh, can have. So Katrina um, and the, the nature of hurricanes and storms and, and climate change, um, you know, Sandy was the eye opener for, for the rest of the country. But, but, you know, we're often asked to represent um, our work uh, in a way that um, addresses those questions. And I think that the climate that we're working in now is, um, uh, is one that supports that perhaps to a greater degree than it did um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, for us, the, the, the issue is we, we often have to show how our work connects uh, to the client's goals, but also to the place that we're building. And so sometimes for a client to hire somebody from uh, New Orleans, let's say a client in, in um, Charleston or Greenwich or whatever, we have to, we have to talk about the work uh, that we've done here locally in a way that allows for it to connect to the issues that they find important in their community. And, and I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that our experience with, we often talk about uh, how, how, how have the lessons that we've learned from the events that we've gone through, such as Katrina, um, given us the uh, ability to trade, in a sense, on our knowledge that we have developed as a result of it. So it is, is, is our experience with um, um, these events, have they been of value in helping you secure clients saying, you know how to deal with, we know how to deal with, um, more complicated climate issues because of our experience with some disasters, including, not excluding, not just, but uh, including Katrina. Uh, absolutely. Now that primarily works in the Southeast region or in certain climate regions that are similar to New Orleans, right? But also the question of coastal resilience is, is um, another factor. Those two things aren't necessarily um, direct relationships. So our practice within the Southeast, we're able to talk about um, uh, developing projects that are connected to their place. And most of the Southeast addresses certain issues of climate that are similar. Right. But the issue of coastal resilience runs, yeah. you know, in a lot of different places. I love the world, really. But thank you very much for your time, Steve. Absolutely. And for your commitment to the community. We didn't really talk about your engagement in the arts that much. Maybe we'll include that next time. Thank Great. You. Thanks. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Some good information, maybe a little fun. And um, I wanted to let you know that we have a newsletter that goes out just in advance of the show. You can sign up for it simply by going to crosstownconvos at gmail.com. And uh, it's got a lot more stuff in it, a lot more articles and images and uh, information on the guests who are on. So um, think about it. Sign up if you'd like. Um, Gene Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK. What we're talking about.